0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, which we'll finish this morning, Lord willing. If you don't have a Bible, please do use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you and open it to Romans 13 we're gonna read the last four verses of this chapter and as you're finding that have you ever noticed how important motivation is in all of life I love motivational speeches I think it's because Um, I just kind of grew up in that sort of football coach culture and heard a hundred halftime speeches when my dad's team was down by 20. Um, I also grew up loving to watch NFL films and listening to maybe the greatest Italian American ever to live, other than Rocky Balboa, Vince Lombardi, and there's this clip on NFL films where Lombardi is on the sidelines in his trench coat and his hat and his, those thick black rimmed glasses that he has and he's mad at his team and he says to him, everybody grabbing out there, nobody tackling. And when he says that, I just, I mean, you know, I am almost 50 and I have, it's been a long time since I've done anything athletically competitive and I want to strap on a helmet and I want to go hit somebody. Motivation is so important in life. Regardless of what it is, whether it's sports or motivation to practice some skill. We have some wonderful young musicians in this church that are majoring in uh, instruments at Columbus State and they practice. It takes motivation to do that, it takes motivation to plow your way through school. It takes motivation to finish army training. It takes motivation to make it through ranger school. It takes motivation to parent children. Motivation is is so basic to life. And our text this morning is Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired motivation the Christian life. So let me read our text, Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Uh, just to give you an outline of this text, I think there's, there's two things that Paul wants us to see, that the Holy Spirit wants us to see, and I've just summarized them in a kind of outline, two words, realize and respond. Realize and respond. Those are, those are two things that I want us to see. So let me read the text, Romans 13, verse 11 through 14, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Thank you for spring. Thank you for the budding of the, the flowers and the trees and, and the, the picture of, of new life that you bring every season, to, every year, to remind us of the new life in the gospel, the only place new life can be found. Thank you for Logan and Molly Copley and their gifts. Thank you, Lord, for the for the burden and the calling that you have put on their heart for these people far away. Lord, we ask you now as we gather around your word that that we would humble ourselves underneath it, that you would do marvelous things. As we look at this text, as we finish out chapter 13, that Lord, the reasoning, the logic of the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture would grip and seize our hearts and today would be decisive in our lives. That the things that, that Paul wrote to the Roman church, would be used by you to, to wake us up out of our slumber, to cause us to realize and respond to, to all of your goodness and all of your gospel with all of our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd help us with this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's remember where we are in Romans as we end section, this, this chapter 13. Paul has outlined the gospel. He's been very, very clear about what it means for a person to be made right with God. And and Logan summarized it so well when he was talking about Martin Luther reading the Bible in the 1500s and and, and capturing the heart of the gospel that had been, for for most parts, lost for, for centuries. That we are made right not by our works of righteousness, which is what the church was wrongly, erroneously, heretically believing at that point, but that we are made right by faith alone and Christ alone. And this is all by grace. God must do it. All people everywhere, whether they are religious or irreligious, non-religious, are born guilty before God. And we, our mouths are stopped, as Romans 3 says. And God has put forward Jesus, His Son, God in the flesh, to be a perfect human, to lay down His life, to bear God's wrath for us, to extinguish it and satisfy it and turn it into God's favor for all of those and only those that would trust by faith in Him. And how do we get this faith? It's it's a gift, it's a grace of God. When God saves a person, He takes their dead heart He gives them a new heart, he makes them alive, and with that new heart is this gift of faith where the person who was unable to obey God is now enabled to obey God and put their faith and trust in Jesus, and then they are now called to live in line with this glorious gospel. They're now called to obey God with their lives. So the first part of the Christian life is salvation, And the second part of the Christian life is sanctification, growing into becoming who God has already made us in Christ. And that's been Paul's point here in Romans 12 and 13. He's outlined the gospel in Romans 1 through 11. And at the beginning of chapter 12, you remember how he says, then I appeal to you now, brothers, to give yourselves to God by the mercy of God, because of the gospel. Give yourself to God as a, living sacrifice. And don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so that's what most of chapter 12 and 13 is about. And he concludes here in the last few verses of Romans 13 with this motivation. He wants his readers and he wants us today, the Holy Spirit, through Paul's words, wants us to understand this ultimate motivation. And the motivation that that Paul is pointing the Roman church to is ultimately the coming of Jesus. So there's something he wants us to realize. Let's look again at verse 11. Paul wants his readers to realize that Jesus is coming back. Verse 11, he says, Besides this you know the time... That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. And so see, it's interesting there in, in verse 11, Paul's speaking of salvation in kind of tenses In one sense, we are saved. And the Bible in other places speaks along these lines as well. Like In 1 Corinthians 15, this beautiful passage about the resurrection, it says that this is the gospel that you believed in which you are being saved. And so in one sense, we are saved. In another sense, we are being saved. We're justified the moment that we trust in Christ. But then we're being saved, we're we're being sanctified, transformed, changed over time from one degree of glory to another, and then there's this future sense when we will finally and fully be saved, when when we will be with God and there will be no more striving with this this age, this, this world. And so Paul is saying that that day, he's writing to the Roman Christians, trying to motivate them, he's saying, wake up, because the end is coming. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. He's warning here, I think, against spiritual procrastination. Bible is full. It's absolutely chock full of this type of exhortation and warning about the certainty of what is often called the day of the Lord. Now, we could spend the balance of our time just reading passages in the New Testament and even in the Old that point forward to this day of the end of this age. But let me just give you a few examples. Mark chapter 13, this is Jesus speaking about the end of this age, this day that we live in now when he will come back. Listen to Mark 13, starting in verse 32. But concerning that day, he's referring to his second coming, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." Listen to Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he's writing to the Corinthian church. He's he's going through this lengthy um, discussion uh, about, about really marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. And then he concludes all of it with this logic that we see about the approaching day. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 29, this is what I mean brothers, the appointed time, meaning this age, this, this time that we live in now, has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what is Paul saying there? Clearly, he's not saying don't pay attention to your wife if you're married, right? Because we have to read the whole Bible in context. If that's all that Paul said about relationships, then we, we might draw that conclusion. But we read the rest of the Bible. We're in Ephesians 5. He talks about how husbands should lay down their lives for their wives as Christ has done for the church. He's not saying that you shouldn't go shopping and, 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 and not d- conduct your daily lives. He's saying that that we should have a light light grip on this world and we should live in a way that doesn't communicate that this world is all there is to this life. He's saying that the present form of this world is passing away. Why should we, we hold lightly to this world? It's because the most important thing is the day that is coming, not the day that is. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 4. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Notice, notice the consequence, the logic of how these Bible writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, viewed the coming of the Lord. As a result of that, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Then in Peter's second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord, again, that's a phrase meaning the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in the li- in lives of holiness and godliness again notice the logic because he's coming back how should you be living waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. James 5, listen to this, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now again, I could read lots and lots more Bible verses that orient God's people outside of these 80 years and that is what Paul is using here as logic for living. He's wanting us to realize this. Now, let's not get caught up in debating the time of Jesus's return. I know when some of us were reading, maybe we're thinking, well, you know, when is Jesus coming back? And there's all of these things that are mentioned in the New Testament and prophecy that needs to be fulfilled and all of that. And those are discussions that we, we can have. I just want us to notice two things here. Is first, is that notice that all of the New Testament writers These apostles, Paul and Peter and Jesus himself, are writing with the idea that they were living in the time that they were expecting the coming of the Lord. And so that's a word for us, that we, we should live in that way. And then secondly, regardless of whether or not Jesus comes back in our lifetime, all of us will die. Jesus may not come to us, but we are going to him. Listen to what, what James says. This, this, this is an important text. James, James chapter 4. We can sit here and have all these discussions about when Jesus is coming back, but, but, but for the vast majority of us, something's going to happen before that if he doesn't come back. All of us, something's going to happen is that we're going to go to him. James 4 verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year and trade and make profit. Friends, that is true. Let me tell you, I I am especially burdened for, for just young people that may be in this room. I'm thinking maybe of a young soldier. Man, I was in your spot 25 years ago. 26 years ago, I came to Columbus, Georgia and reported to Fort Benning. And the past 26 years have gone by like that. And all of the sudden, my knees hurt, my back is sore, and my hair's falling out. And I can't see. Where did it go? And I can remember being In your stage of life, just thinking, well, I'll get to that. I'll I'll start taking the Lord seriously when this happens or that happens. Let me just kind of do what I need to do to get through this this cool this course. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take over this. Come on, your life. Listen to the logic of the Bible here. Listen to the logic of God writing the Bible, the Holy Spirit. Life is but a Mist. And and Paul is writing to motivate the Roman church with this idea that this day, whether it means Jesus is coming back or your days on this life in this earth are numbered, the day is coming when there will be no more time for getting serious with God. So realize that the day of the Lord draws near. I think that's the first thing Paul wants us to see. And what are we to do? when we realize that, his logic is clear. He, we're to respond. Look at what he says back in our text in Romans 11, or, I'm sorry, Romans 13. we starting in verse midway through verse 12. We're to respond. How are we to respond? Let me read verse 12 through 14 again. He says, starting midway there through verse 12, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I pray today that as we, as we even read that text, we read these words that that the Holy Spirit might use this decisively in our lives to be a time when we, when we respond to whatever the Lord may be saying to us. that Today is the day where there's a decisive break made with some of these things that maybe we're wrestling with or some, some work of darkness or some besetting sin. That We would respond. Paul is calling us here to respond in two ways, I think. He's calling us to put some things off And he's calling us to put some things on. What is he saying that we should, what does it mean that we should put off, cast off? Look at at verse 12 again. He says, then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of life. Casting off, putting off. What What does that mean? The same word there that he uses for casting off is the same word that he uses in this, that the Bible uses in the story of blind Bartimaeus, who's this blind beggar that Jesus calls in Mark chapter 10. Jesus calls him, And he's got this cloak which was this this cloak of security for a a blind beggar and it says that bartimaeus just threw he just cast off this cloak he just threw it he just got rid of it because jesus was calling him and so that's the picture here that we throw off that we get rid of works of darkness what hinders us think about think about your own life right now what what is hindering you from pressing into following God with all that you are? Is there known willful disobedience that is blocking your relationship with him? Right now, this word is for you today, it's for us. Cast it off now, now. Listen to what Jesus says about how we should do this, the severity with which we should treat our own residual sin. In Matthew chapter 5, he says this, starting in verse 27. You have heard, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than, your whole, than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, I don't think Jesus is literally saying that we should dismember ourselves and maim ourselves. I think this is a metaphor but a striking metaphor for how severe we should take fighting our residual sin. You know what I thought about when I thought about this text, and I thought about just this, this whole passage in Romans 13? I thought about the whole, the whole journey we've taken through, um, through Romans. And I thought about some of the high points in Romans, and in particular, Romans chapter 8, where there's just this, this crescendo of the glory of the gospel, about how there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a glorious passage? And then, the, then this, this, this midway through there, towards the end of Romans 8, Romans eight thirty one: if God is for us, who can be against us, right? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? Amen, right? And then what about what about the, the little bit further after that where it talks about how we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And now nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And when I read chapter 8, my heart swells and I want to shadow box and I want to stand up and I want to shout amen to the glory of the gospel, right? <laughs> but, but Romans 13 is a consequence of all of those things that we've been saying amen to for a couple years. And when we read these texts like cast off the works of darkness and chop off your hand if, you, if it makes you sin, it's just like we don't stand up and say, yeah, And and I understand why, but friends, the the same force, the same weight, come on, let's not be people who glory in the grace of the gospel and forget about the obedience that the grace of the gospel calls for. That's what Paul is is reminding, he's he's calling us to respond to this right now. What are we to cast off? Well, he lists a few things here. He says we're to cast off works of darkness and then he he gives us three little pairs of of categories of sin he says in verse 13 not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality not in quarreling and jealousy I thought a good bit this week about why Paul mentioned that, why the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think every word of God, every letter in this book is, 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 has a purpose and is, and is sovereignly ordained by God for particular reasons. And I think why Paul mentions, especially these first two things, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, it speaks to this, this darkness, this, this godlessness of the flesh. That, that all of us I think are familiar with. Regardless of whether or not we maybe have participated in any of these things, I think we all feel this, this, this inwardness, this, this, this anarchy that results in our life when we are in charge of our own lives, rebelling against the kingship of God, acting as if we exist for ourselves. And we give ourselves over to, we don't see ourselves as being created by God and saved by God. We forget the gospel. We forget who we are. And, and we're prone to give ourselves to a kind of, a kind of licentiousness, a kind of godlessness. There that, that are things that are done at, at, at night. They're, they're done on the cover of darkness, orgies, drunkenness, losing control, sexual immorality. What, it's important for us to understand what that word Means. Let's not just let it be a kind of ambiguous category. Uh, there's a couple words in the New Testament that, that are translated into English in, as sexual immorality. And one of them, it's not the word that Paul uses here, but he uses it in other places like 1 Corinthians 6, and then Jesus uses it in the Gospels. Sexual immorality means any, any, any sexual activity outside of the one flesh union between one man and one woman in marriage. So this, this includes it includes all heterosexual sin outside of marriage. It includes all same-sex attraction, homosexuality. All of this is outside of what God has intended for his people. And, and Paul is calling it work of darkness. And he's telling us to put that off. Not, not merely because God has a list of things that he just doesn't want us to do, because it doesn't lead us into joy. It doesn't lead us into the, the joy that comes with walking with God. It may, it may lie to us in a moment, but it never delivers. And he says, no, not quarreling or jealousy. This, this kind of interpersonal relationship that we have with other people where we covet and we, we hoard and we withdraw. Practical application here. What, what in your life leads you away from God? D- don't be tempted to read yourself off of this list. You may think, oh, well, I've never actually done any of those things. But well, remember what we read about Jesus where he says, even thinking about these things, is you, you're, still, you're still guilty according to God's law. So let, let's, not, let's not let ourselves off the hook. Right now, what in your life Come on, this this for many of us in this room can be a wholly decisive moment in your life with Christ. What leads you away from God? Is it blowing your life on binging a Netflix series? Is it social media? Is it a particular group of friends? Is it an app on your phone? What is it? What is it? And what is the word of God saying to you about that thing? Coddle it, nurse it, put it in a little incubator in a dark closet. No, he's saying, cast it off, throw it off like Bartimaeus threw off his cloak. Cast it off, cut it off, do whatever it takes, get severe, because what hangs in the balance is your soul. Now, I believe in eternal security, friends. This, we can talk about that fuller at, at another time. But, but Jesus is warning us that it's possible for us to deceive ourselves. And it's better for you to be decisive and severe with your sin than to deceive yourself and for not for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's what Jesus' reasoning is. And that's what Paul is standing on here when he's saying, wake up, cast these things off. Holiness is important. And then what does he tell us positively? Negatively, to cast off, and positively, verse 14, the sweetness of the gospel. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Jesus. If you are a Christian, everything that we have just said is possible because of what has already happened to you. You are in Christ. You were dead and you could not obey God. That's clear in Romans chapter eight, verses seven and eight says that that the heart that is set on the flesh is unable to obey God, but the heart that's been made new is now enabled. If you're in Christ, your old nature that you may still struggle with is dead. But now you have been made new. Listen, listen to this logic. We, we, let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Open your Bibles to Romans 6. I want you to see this. Romans 6, I think, is just one of the most important chapters when it comes to fighting sin and sanctification in, in the whole Bible. This, this logic is clear. Paul says in Romans 6, and, and he's, he's, remember in Romans 6, that his point is, is that he talked about the unbelievable, scandalous, glorious grace of the gospel that he was, he was anticipating that people would say, wait a minute, if God's grace is so free and so unconnected to what we do to make ourselves right with God, then we might as well just do whatever we want if it doesn't matter what we do. To be saved. And Paul's point is, no, you're not saved by your works. But when the grace of God truly rescues you, it will necessarily transform you. And now something fundamentally has changed. Grace doesn't only forgive, it transforms and enables. And so here's what he says in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? And how do we die to sin? Well, he tells us in verse three, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So friends, that's what baptism is for. It's meant to picture spiritual death. You guys know you can't breathe underwater, right? And the water of baptism is a picture of the water of God's judgment in the Old Testament. In the flood, God brings water to judge the earth. And in baptism, we are, we are saying that Jesus has bore the floodwaters of God's wrath for us. He died for us on the cross and rose again in victory over sin death in the grave he he dried up the flood of God's wrath for us so he died on the cross and then he he drank damnation dry as Spurgeon says and he gets up from the grave and in baptism it's a picture of that we go down not saying that we're trying harder now but we go down in the water saying that we died with Christ and we've, we've been raised again. And now, because we've been raised again, Jesus is ours. He's in us. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we were dead, but now we're alive. Verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So notice Paul's logic. He's saying you you died in Christ to sin and you've been raised to the newness of life. And the rest of chapter 6 is saying now because of that, now you can fight your old man that's already died. So really in a way, and I'm not kidding, you you may be tempted to laugh, but I actually think that that there's there's a spiritual component to this. There's a reason why all these silly zombie shows are so popular. Because it's it's actually a kind of picture of the Christian life. We're we're fighting zombies. Our old self is dead, but it's still walking around, like, coming after us. And, And Romans 6 it's basically about how the gospel, the good news of the gospel means that you're, you're dead and you've been raised again. But the remaining time here on earth, your sanctification is slaying your former self, your zombie, that still keeps getting up. But you've got to, you've got to. Slay him with the power of the gospel and you can because you're alive and he's dead. That, that's the logic of, of Romans 6. And that's the logic of verse 14 of Romans 13. You can do it because you have, you have put on Christ. You can put on Christ because Christ has been put on you. Listen to what Galatians... Listen to what Galatians... Um, uh, where am I? Galatians chapter 3... Uh, verse 27. I don't even know if I... Yeah, there it is. Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So when you became a Christian, Christ was... You were hidden with Christ in God. He's in you. You're in Him. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. This is something that happened to you. Now, because it's happened to you, you can fight the fight that has already been won for you. And you may be thinking, why would God leave me to fight a fight that has already been won? Because he wants to use your life as a display of the grace so that he might bring others to it. That's why you exist, friends. That's why you're still struggling with sin. That's why God still allows you to go through things so that through your living out, Romans 13, casting off, putting on, God might use your life as a testimony to the possibility of grace and new life for others to see. That, that, that's why, friends, if, 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 you're, if right now you're wrestling with something, and, and by the way, isn't that all of us? Come on, don't act like, oh, I wonder who he's speaking about now. Oh, come on. Friends, we, 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 God leaves us here so that we might be used as a fragrance and an aroma of the glory of the gospel that God would use in other people's lives. And so we, we put on, that's, that's why we have to put on, that's why we have to cast off what has already been put on and cast off for us. Do you see that? And how do we do that? He says there at this last half of verse 14, he says, make no provision for the flesh man this word provision it's a strange word it actually in other parts of the new testament it actually speaks about the providence of god like like god knowing something in the future make no foresight is another way to say it knowing something beforehand And what paul is saying here is part of part of your sanctification part of putting on part of the necessary thing that you have to do that's already been done for you so that it enables you to even do the very doing that you're called to do is making no foresight, not looking ahead into time and carving out space for that flesh and darkness to grow and be gratified and drag you down into that old way of life. We all know, what we, if we think about our lives, we all, we all know how we just kind of plan ahead. We keep a little space, a little, a little margin, a little buffer for something still to kind of grow, right? Don't we? Don't we? Come on now. And right now, I mean, I, look. What, what's right now? Resolve to cut that thing off. Like, right now, resolve to speak to somebody and confess that sin. Resolve to fight that, to make war against that thing. Right now, I... I, I, I usually get mad at you for looking at your phones, but right now, text somebody and say, we need to talk before the sun goes down on this day, and I need you to come and help me fight this thing so that I would make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And we fight, and we respond, and we do this because Jesus is coming back, and we do this because he's worth it. One of the things I do before I preach on any particular text is I like to listen to or or read historic sermons on these texts. Sometimes they're so good I just think, man, I should just read this. Uh, But I I don't. But I I listen to a bunch of sermons and Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, a few others. And every sermon I listened to this week on Romans chapter 13 and 11 through 14 or every sermon I read referenced how this text was used, was decisive in the conversion of one of the great thinkers and minds in the history of the church, Augustine, all the way back in the late 300s, early 400s. And Augustine was a man who struggled. He was a very, very gifted, gifted man, brilliant young student. And he had a praying mother that uh, would continue to pray for his salvation and he would always stray and kind of show signs of grace and then stray. And it was just like a, a turmoil, an inner turmoil for Augustine as he was sort of in the birth canal of the Holy Spirit being brought to God. You know, he just was this wrestling with this sin that he was giving. And in particular, the, the stripe of sin that Augustine was dealing with was, was sexual immorality, kind of rampant sexual immorality. He had all these, all these, um, these lovers and and was was it, it just in this inner turmoil. And he wrote this famous work called Confessions. And he speaks about his conversion and how this text is the text. What we read, Romans 13, 11 through 14, is the text that God used to to ultimately slay him and kill him and bring him to life in the light of the gospel. And he, he, he recounts in his book, Confessions, about his testimony of coming to faith. How He, was, he had a friend, and they were talking about you know, spiritual matters. And, and he left a, a copy of the Bible, in particular, the book of Romans, on this bench. And he went into this little garden to pray. And, and he heard these children, and he'd never heard these children before. He heard the sound of, of a children singing the, just over from the garden where he was, saying, Take up, take up, take up, and read. And he took this as the Holy Spirit speaking to him to go back to the Bible that he had left on this bench where he was talking with his friend and to take it up and to read the first verse that his eyes fell upon. So he was like he was playing Bible roulette, which you know, it's not the best way to go about it. But, but, but this is what was happening to, to, to Augustine in this moment. And he opened up the Bible and he's, he's racked with lust, and fighting sin, and sexual sin, and he opens up the Bible, and the first thing he reads is Romans 13, verse 11 through 14 that we've read, this beautiful verse about casting off, let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. And then this is what Augustine wrote later on as he was thinking about that moment when he knows that the Lord was speaking to him and he, he trusted in Christ in that moment. He says in his confessions, But thou, O Lord, art good and merciful, and thy right hand didst reach into the depth of my death and didst empty out the abyss of corruption from the bottom of my heart. And this was the result now I did not will to do what I willed and began to do, to will to do what thou didst will. In other words, God came in and gave him a new heart and enabled him to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues and says, but where was my free will during all those years? And from what deep and secret retreat was it called forth in a single moment? In other words, in and of myself, I couldn't obey God. But then grace happened. Then salvation came. Then Christ came, in, Christ was put on me, and now I was enabled. How sweet, he continues, did it suddenly become to me to be without the sweetness of trifles, meaning all of those former sins. And it was now a joy to put away what I formerly feared to lose. For that The reasoning here is so important. For thou didst cast them away from me, O true and highest sweetness. Thou didst cast them away and put in their place. Thou didst enter in thyself sweeter than all pleasure. Friends, what Paul is calling us here to is not... The cutting away or the casting off of joy, but the putting on of Jesus, the denial of our flesh, so that we might have the true and only joy, which comes in obedience with obedience to Christ. Oh, that he would use this word in our lives in some measure, like he used it in Augustine's so many centuries ago. Let's pray. Father, you are the true and sovereign joy. Lord, I know, I just know, because I know my own life, I know my own sanctification's journey and struggles, and I know from listening to so many brothers and sisters in this room that there are people in this room who are being dominated by their own flesh. They feel weary. They feel beat up. They feel powerless. Lord, may this be a decisive day when they realize all of the hope of the gospel, all of the power of the new life, all of the glory of putting on Christ, where they are enabled to make war against their flesh, where they are enabled to fight sin. Lord, do this for us, for all of us. None of us are exempt from this warning. Lord, do it, I pray. Lord, there may be some in this room who realize that they've been trying to make themselves right with you by their own efforts, and, 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 and they're not truly born again. Lord, they're, 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 still, they're still the slave of another master. Lord, today would you, would you kill them with this, with this word, and then would you, would you raise them up again? would well, they finally die to themselves and put on Jesus because their own attempts have, have, have been so futile and, 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 and pointless up to this, this, this day, Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you give them the grace that only you can give so that they can be made new and fight sin and live for you and pursue the true sweetness of grace? And Lord, would you give us all resolve to fight this fight that's already been won for the sake of your glory amongst all peoples. I pray that you do this, Lord, in us, in the lives in this room. Lord, do it, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.